Before our conversation with Jonathan Hamilton Dibo gets started, we wanted to let you know that we recorded the conversation late in April 2021. In fact, the day after the guilty verdict was announced for the killer of George Floyd, which is the trial that you'll hear Jonathan refer to at one point. Since we recorded this episode, the remains of 215 indigenous children were found buried on the site of the Kamloops Indian Residential School, with similar discoveries being made at other residential school sites since this discovery in Kamloops. The deaths of these children were previously undocumented, though their loss was known among the indigenous communities from which these children were taken. As a community, we are deeply grieved by these atrocities committed in the name of the nation we call Canada. We're outraged by the blatant disregard for life that the discovery in Kamloops reveals, and we lament the complicity of our tradition in the systems of oppression that led to the establishment of residential schools. We recognize, moreover, that these are not simply past tragedies, but that the effects of the residential school system continue into the present day. Hence, these discoveries in Kamloops and in other places show that the work of uncovering truth and enacting reconciliation is far from over, and that it's more important than ever to heed what Indigenous communities are and have been saying. For this reason, we're especially grateful to Jonathan Hamilton Diabo for having spoken with us on the podcast and for sharing with us his stories, his concerns, his wisdom, and his hopes. Hello, I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast has been coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I'm a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Andrew Tebbett, and I'm postdoctoral research associate at the Centre, and today we're continuing our series of conversations about the challenges facing philosophy and Christian faith in the wake of 2020. It's been a tumultuous year, and many of us have been left wondering how to look ahead as we think about the increased visibility of systemic racism, the ongoing effects of the Trump presidency, and the reality of the pandemic. Focusing especially on old and new political questions, this series invites scholars and educators within and outside the ICS community to tell us about what's at the forefront of their minds as they contemplate what's worth saving in a post-2020 world. Today we're joined by Jonathan Hamilton Dibo, Assistant Professor at Emmanuel College at Victoria University here in Toronto. Jonathan's research and teaching at Emmanuel focuses on the history and impacts of residential schools, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its calls to action, and interactions between Indigenous communities and the Christian Church. Jonathan is also June Callwood Professor in Social Justice and Special Advisor on Indigenous Issues at Emmanuel, and he was part of the Steering Committee for the University of Toronto's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Given Jonathan's academic work, as well as his long-standing commitment to increasing the presence of Indigenous peoples and ways of knowing within the university community, we were very excited to hear what he's been thinking about in light of the events of the past year. Let's get started.
This past year has posed its fair share of challenges. In the midst of a global pandemic, and in light of our increasingly polarized political landscape, we've seen many of our most familiar assumptions and categories questioned. So at Critical Faith, we wanted to take the opportunity to reflect on how the events of the last year have affected our ways of thinking and on what our role in society can and should be as political philosophers working in a faith tradition. Today, we're continuing the conversation about faith and political thought in the wake of 2020 by turning our attention to questions about indigeneity and Christian higher education with our guest, Jonathan Hamilton Dybel, assistant professor at Emmanuel College. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you join us at Critical Faith. Welcome. Thank you. I'm looking forward to being here with all of you today. So I've listed a few of your official titles and credentials in, in the introduction to our conversation, but I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about yourself. So I'm Jonathan Hamilton Dybel. I am from Ganawage, which is a Mohawk community outside of uh, Montreal. Um, I lived there, I guess, for the first, I guess, half of my life, I would say, <laughs> maybe less than half now, and uh, moved to Toronto uh, in the early 90s. And so um, I've been engaged with the Indigenous community in Toronto since the mid-90s in, in different capacities, um, social service agencies such as the Native Canadian Centre of Toronto, um, and uh, spent, I guess, nearly almost 21 years now at U of T uh, in multiple capacities. The majority of my work has been with First Nations House, which is the uh, now Indigenous Student Services uh, at U of T. So I played multiple roles, but spent 14 of those years as director. Uh, I was also an academic counselor and a student recruitment officer. That's just how I started. Um, I was, so, and then, after 2019, and of course, we'll be talking a little bit about the TRC, um, one of the results was the establishment of a brand new office called the Office of Indigenous Initiatives, which was really to help support any work being done across U of T at all three campuses that weren't just student related or student service related. Uh, it was broader and I became the director there uh, in 2019 and really was helping the university um, move through the TRC report that was produced um, prior to that and, and the own, their own calls to actions. So uh, myself and my team working with other Indigenous people who are at the university um, was to help move through these recommendations or these calls to action and, and to find ways of supporting campuses or, or faculties or departments uh, on how to engage with this and how to enhance Indigenous presence, which is quite a big word, but it's that could mean many things, curriculum, a visibility on campus itself, the increase of students, faculty, staff, um, but also how to raise the awareness and, and understanding of Indigenous communities. So really that was a big part of that work during that time. And then I moved over to uh, Victoria University, which is one of the federated universities within U of T, uh, in 2019 to take a teaching role uh, within Victoria College and Emmanuel College. Uh, so I teach undergrad students, uh, mostly in the education and society stream. And um, in Emmanuel, uh, a lot of my work is focusing around Indigenous relationships and, and relationships with the church and, and Christianity as a faith. And we look at residential schools, we look at Indigenous spiritualities and how they interact 
I'm also special advisor uh, to the president of Victoria University on Indigenous Initiatives. That's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, I was, I'm an alumni of Emmanuel College. I uh, did my, de- my first degree there. How prior to that though, I actually I'd have an education degree. So I was actually supposed to teach kids. Didn't quite roll out as I planned, but hey, I'm not complaining. It worked out. And also um, I have a business degree. I don't talk about that too much anymore. Um, I was into banking. Uh, so anyways, yeah, I, I, I had my moments in the dark side and I moved away from it. But um, it, it served me well, let's just say that. Um, and, and that's a bit about me. I also am a father. Uh, have three uh, great children and uh, all between the ages of 12 to well, almost 12 year old and to 17. So we are a busy household here, uh, myself and my wife. And we have... Uh, a cat and a, and a rabbit. That's kind of our household. Um, well, thanks for that. That's, that's great to hear. So our podcast, Critical Faith, has a blended audience of scholars, university students, educators, and other members of our community who are together interested in, in our philosophical and theological reflection. Uh, we know that your own interdisciplinary work has touched on many of the areas of interest of these, uh, of these constituencies. In light of this connection. Could you walk us through some of the most significant moments or milestones um, of your work? Well, I think and it's really interesting, I, I guess, how it's, uh, you know, the question itself around interdisciplinary. I've never approached how I do my work kind of in boxes. I kind of look at things very holistically and, and kind of really with a, a wide view. Um, so I always am looking for connections uh, between people or, or people's work. Because sometimes what happens is when you get into a place like a university, you become very focused on your area. I find a lot of groups, a lot of areas try to solve on their own without taking into consideration as has been done before. And so I kind of take more of a, a, a very different approach in terms of it's not just about what is out there, but what relationships exist. And so one of the things, I guess, in terms of accomplishments, per se, is around being able to build various relationships and, and, to, and to not just make them, but to continually cultivate them, to make them grow. And so places like when I was working at First Nations House, as an example, is I felt it was really important that First Nations House, understandably as a department, we were really geared towards uh, supporting Indigenous students who were at the university. But we also felt there was great benefit on expanding into other areas to be able to, to, to really think through how other places, how we could connect with them and grow and, and to help, and particularly in areas that didn't have a lot of Indigenous students either. Um, there's been a lot of that kind of work. And so one of the things I felt we, I was able to do with First Nations House wasn't just to say, we work with Indigenous students only, and, and that's all we're going to concentrate on, and everyone else is going to fend on their own. And that wasn't the way it was. It was really inviting people to come in and to learn. And so one of the things I felt we were able to accomplish at First Nations House was able to build a very strong community uh, and welcome people to to come in to learn about indigenous peoples to engage with indigenous people to to work alongside with and so i think that was one of the key things that i always looked at doing was helping others understand what was actually happening and i think 
sometimes um, when people think of indigenous peoples largely, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the cultures. It's generally approach kind of thinking of one indigenous group, one body, uniform body, which isn't the case. We really tried to show the, the diversity that exists the knowledge and, and also the richness of the cultures and to really show that number one, indigenous people have been around, are always around. They've contributed in so many different ways in, in different aspects of, of not just university life, but in our society. And those are things that are not, are not always recognized, the contributions. And I think that to me, that was a big accomplishment. And it wasn't just me, it was working with so many other people and be able to help raise, you know, the profiles of certain people, raise to, to showcase that there are different ways of how Indigenous peoples um, tackle or, or to address issues. But at the same time, that we were, I didn't want us to always be seen collectively, I guess is the best way of looking at this, as victims or as those that are poor or those that, right, there, there tends to be a lot more negative type of observations or, or stereotypes on our community largely and and i've learned this throughout the years i find because number one um, if i don't introduce myself as as a mohawk person people don't make that assumption about me and they tend to be a little bit more open when it comes to first nations issues and and and, and people have said things throughout the years that yeah it could be quite hurtful but that was also because they didn't realize you know, <laughs> of my own, of, of who I was in my background. And so I really felt it was important to really help people understand the community and, and not just all the, the negative aspects that people associate. These are things that issues that Indigenous people have been dealing with for such a long time. So I'm not saying that they don't exist. They do exist. There's issues of racism. There's issues of poverty and, and non-access to health and other things. There's a lot of issues going on. Historically, there's also a lot of issues that need to be contended with. But at the same time, there are so many accomplishments that don't always get recognized. And so I felt, you know, in the sense of working with people, that's what I ended up doing. And I really wanted others to see Indigenous people as people, as individuals, as diversity, like in terms of the diverse ways of how Indigenous people do connect with each other. There are commonalities in our communities. There have always been commonalities. There's also some really stark differences. Those are the things that I think for me has been really uh, important to focus in on and, and to have people understand the things that are not normally brought forward. From my end, and one thing I always say too from my end is, right, what you're getting is my perspective. I'm not the one voice for all Indigenous peoples. I'm not the one voice that can speak to every, right? I talk from a place of, of my own experiences, working with other Indigenous communities and, and other Indigenous peoples. But at the same time, I'm also very grounded from where I come from in terms of my own community uh, and my own lived experiences in, in the city as well and, and those engagements. So particularly at the university in 20, like 21 years, I can't necessarily say there was a point in place. I think there's been multiple little points in place and it was more of this journey and, and watching things grow and unfold, but also to really strongly understand that it didn't start at a particular time. It was stuff that happened even before I got there and that I was fortunate enough to help build and work with other people on. 
So I think what it was, was really trying to have a stronger recognition of our community. And there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But I think we're on this path right now that helps us to proceed and grow and, and, and continue. One of the things that stands out as especially interesting is how you say it's, it's not just a community that serves just Indigenous people, but is, serves everyone or a place to bring people together. Can you just explain, I guess, the specific role of First Nations House and the, the kind of things that, that characterize its mission, I guess? Yeah, so I think, you know, when, when I was there, and of course, there's been other people involved with First Nations House. So First Nations House was, has been around as an entity since 1992. Prior to that, it actually, its roots started in um, the, I think at that point would have been called the Aboriginal Health Promotions Program. Uh, so it was really started off as a way of trying to encourage and engage Indigenous community to consider health health-related programs, because there's a, there's a lack of people there. And so lack of representation. And so it developed in 1992 into a full service and continued to continue to grow over that time. And so um, when I came on board and became director in 2003, um, there were at that point, three other directors prior to me and the work that they've done. And then really the, the key aspect of what First Nations House does is first and foremost is to support Indigenous students on campus, but really it was to be a place for Indigenous students to not just to be welcome, but to find a a space that they could be um, recognized, that they could engage with other Indigenous community members as well. So there was a lot of academic type of supports, other type of supports available to them in terms of elders. Um, we also had a library on site. They needed a study space. They needed a computer space. It was just a space for, for people to come together. Um, the Native Students Association was also a big part of First Nations House as well and, and other student bodies. So in, in essence, it, its primary focus was to ensure that Indigenous students were, were supported in their academic journey. Um, however, though, we also had really strong links with the Indigenous Studies Program, which started a couple of years after First Nations House was established. And, and a lot of those students who are in there, a good number of them are actually non-Indigenous. So they were learning about, you know, in, in classrooms, they were learning about Indigenous communities, they were engaging with Indigenous professors. Um, but a lot of the classes were also held at First Nations House. So it allowed this opportunity for the students to not just be in, in a classroom space and learning, but also to be engaged in the community, which we were able to help offer that. And so there would be partnerships between us. Um, but a lot of our programming actually was open to all community. So Indigenous Education Week, which used to be known as Aboriginal Awareness Week, that was a, a really big draw for us um, from getting people from all different areas of the university, but also community members as well, to, uh, to learn about specific issues that we were focusing on uh, during that time. And we would bring in multiple speakers within the universities, outside the university, students being involved. And, and, and so that way people could hear from different perspectives and different voices. And I think that was always really important. And that was kind of one aspect of it. Um, but then also did uh, not, the students who are non-Indigenous also started to create relationships with other students. So they would actually come and use First Nations House very much like, you know, Indigenous students were using First Nations House as well. 
So there were some active, very specific programming that we did that people were engaged with. And sometimes it was just more of a place to do, to hang out and wait. We really uh, welcome people to come in and, and to learn and to, to engage and build relationship and to get to know one each other. And so, you know, I think that was kind of to me a really key aspect of First Nations House. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about your experience as co-chair of the steering committee for the University of Toronto's response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I guess my question has two parts. Uh, firstly, what were some of the most notable results or, and or action steps that, that came out of the process? And then secondly, what do you see are the most significant challenges ahead uh, facing the university in response to that, to, to the U of T's response? I was really blessed to have that opportunity to work as a co-chair. Uh, I actually was a co-chair with Stephen Toop. I think for me, it was a, it was a real honor to be asked to be, to be a co-chair for this because of, because of the significance of the whole process, right? The TRC, like the TRC, the, the commission's report just came out and, and has now big national spotlight on it. And what we were tasked to do was how the university was to respond to this. And the one thing to me that I, I, I felt was really a big accomplishment, I mean, one of the key things obviously was the outcome was this report that came out of it. But to me, what was as important was the process, was our journey to get there. As co-chairs, we had made a decision that what we needed was to have others involved with this process. It should not be relying on two people or a small group of people to determine, you know, how the university should be moving ahead. So we worked with a great committee. We had people from different aspects of all the campuses. We've had faculty members. We had students. We had staff members, elders, um, senior administration. So as a steering committee, our role was to help guide this process. And so we were able to draw in all these experiences and all this great knowledge together. And, and from there, we developed a number of working groups out of there, which had engaged a larger number of people. So again, we went from, our, and our, our committee was 14 people, and we went into five different working groups, which then had roughly between eight and 10 people. So now you multiply the number of people who are involved, and you start drawing in people with their own experiences. So we established a group on students to think about what do we need to, to think about for students, for curriculum, for faculty hiring, for research, for co-curricular. So those were like the big five areas that we wanted to do. And what we were able to do was to tell each group, this is broadly what we're responsible for, was to respond to the DRC. Here's your topic, go. We just really want to keep it open and allow the creativity to happen, but not to put forward saying the community has already has some ideas what we want. So we want you to reinforce them. We actually had a blank slate. And so uh, it allowed each group to, to address this in their own way. You know, all the groups knew who each other were. So they had the opportunity to, to talk to each other if they wanted to. Uh, how they wished to consult broadly, each, each place had their own way of doing so as well. So I think to me was seeing that process in place and trying to be, number one, as transparent as possible to be very open and to ensure that we try to reach out to as many people as possible so that they had ways of engaging with this, with this, uh, this process. And, and the results that we got back from each group was, was just fantastic. Um, and what we noticed though, that there were some common themes that came out of all of them. 
And one of the key things that we never established a group for, but we needed to then establish a particular space in our reporting to think about was around spacing. We didn't have an Indigenous space body, but every single place, every single working group identified that as being important. And space could be really thought through in so many different ways. But really, it was, a, it was around space could have been how do we enhance Indigenous spaces for Indigenous students? So places like First Nations House, but what do we do with Scarborough and Mississauga as an example, which didn't have really an identified space for Indigenous students there? So that's one way of thinking about space, right? Physical space. But it was also about visibility and, and to be able to walk through campus. And do you see any examples or demonstrations of Indigenous communities on campus? Well, unless you have certain places that are Indigenous focused, you generally don't. So I think those are just some of the great things that came out of this process. The end result, yes, was a report. And, and that it had a call to action, uh, 34 calls to action. It focused in broadly on the six areas. So it was the five identified areas of the working group plus the spacing that came into play. And, and it kind of gave, uh, I would say, a blueprint for the university now to look at and think about and resonate and how we are going to move ahead. The one thing about this, though, and I'll say this, uh, again, the work of the TRC and the work of our group wasn't the start of something. It was actually the articulation of the work that has been going on at the university for, for decades prior, because there were other people doing this work. And it was because of what they were able to, the foundation they were able to lay down was it enabling us now to, to stand on a different platform and be able to now move that platform up to be able to enhance. So again, to me, I'm part of this big story that's been underway, going for a long time. And I had a part to play in it. And I was very happy to have a part to play in it. But I also need to recognize that there were so many other people uh, that had to deal with things that I didn't have to deal with. Because they, they were the first. And that is something really that needs to be always thought about. Because when you're trying to, to, to move through you know, particularly bringing forward, and at that point, we've been known as Aboriginal initiatives, right? People weren't thinking about it in the same way back in the 80s. And, and, and it was a different climate. It was a different way. So I do need to recognize that. And, and, and so I can see the progress that happened. And so again, what we were able to do was have this report articulate all of that work and, and, and all the things that people, Indigenous people, have been working through that's now in a report on paper that the university has produced and, and made public, which was also as important. So again, the process itself was really important. Um, like we understood the, 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 the significance of this. The issue that we had to also contend with and think about was that there were others that had their eye on the process and what we were doing. It was our own community within the university, but it was also the external community. And it was those who were survivors who knew about what we were doing. There was a vested interest in what we were doing. And so I'll be honest, if we wrote the same exact report between the two of us and produced it largely, it would have not been accepted, I think, definitely in the same way from our community. Because it would have been about, like, who are you to come up with this? 
This is why we really needed to ensure that there was engagement. Now, some of the limitations, there's not enough engagement always. There's so many different voices that we, we wish we could attend to. There were probably other areas that we really didn't think about that came out that uh, in particular, when it became, uh, when people were starting to read the report, the first question is, how do we get involved? But they did, there was no understanding on how to learn more about the communities themselves and the issues. And so part of the issues too, when we talk about truth reconciliation is to focus on reconciliation, not necessarily understanding what the truth was and the story and the narratives. And so that was something that was really important. And another challenge is time. We, we actually had a year to establish this. It took time to even just get the committees together to get things going. We were four months in before we, we were really rolling. Could we have always used with more time? Yes, we could have. But at the same time, we understood the sense of the urgency of why that the university really wanted to have something in play. It wasn't just like a committee got started and then it kept going on and on and on. And with, we, we, we obviously knew we needed to do something. So we, we knew that the report was never going to be perfect. It wasn't our perfect report, but it kind of gave us this space now to be able to help to think about and grow. And of course, you know, people appreciate the report, but people also had different viewpoints on it as well. But also the other aspect of this was that, and we've seen this in so many different ways when it comes to reports, reports come out, they get shelved. They're, they're, they're trendy for a little while. And then, oh, you know, something else is shiny. Let's go over there. So we also had to ensure and find ways of ensuring that this wasn't it. This wasn't our answer. When, when the report itself was now being handed over to the president and the provost and the university, uh, it was done in a way in ceremony. Trust. There is a great deal of trust that's, that, that needs to be in place here. And the trust is that this will be taken seriously and that it will help bolster and not just get put aside and, and it had to be ingrained. So you're now at Emmanuel College, which is a theological college within the Toronto School of Theology um, housed within Victoria College. So I'm curious what you're, what you're currently exploring in terms of your research and, and teaching. And I'm wondering how has the focus of your work on indigeneity changed in the context of an institution with a religious affiliation? I'll be honest, it hasn't changed for me uh, in the sense of how I engage with it. Partly is, as I mentioned before, I am, I'm an alumni uh, of, of uh, Emmanuel. So in terms of my relationship with that community, um, it's been a long-term relationship. And, and although people have changed, I've always maintained a strong relationship with the college. In addition, um, I knew a lot of people who were alumni as well, and that they're Indigenous alumni. So I, I can't say my approach changed, but I think what's helped me to understand, and, and the one thing that I did need to kind of think through a little bit differently is, you know, as far as I understand, I'm kind of a first in many ways. There's been other teachers there. There have been other people who've been engaged. I taught as, as a sessional. But Emmanuel has not had someone who was a, an appointed faculty person. And so that was unique. And it's probably within the Toronto School of Theology as well. So that was something that's new. Although I've been engaged, the engagement would have been different because I would have been brought in and so have other people as people who are outside those communities. We were external people. We worked for other places. We were involved in other things and we were brought in. 
I'm in, I didn't leave. So that's a bit of a difference in, in that engagement. So I had, so some of the role had changed. And I think that's something I needed to think about. And so I think the one thing that I, I need to always contend with on this is the work that I'm doing, who's it for? So again, one of my focal points is always around relationships. That's my grounding point is the establishment of relationships and, and, and have people think that through. So to me, that's really important. And it is to bring in other voices as well. I just don't want it to be my voice. I want other voices to be present. And so when I'm thinking about indigeneity, um, and that's such a, sometimes a difficult word for me as well, because what does that truly mean, right? It, it's such a broad term. It, so again, it's like, you really have to think through what, the, what does this mean to the core? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to transform? And so the thing that I, I think about is I feel one of my roles has always been, as, as with First Nations House, is to engage with people who want to learn about communities, how to make those connections, how to have people engage and, and, and to find ways of, of them working with community to be part of it. However, the other aspect is how are we also working to get more Indigenous people involved in this as students, as faculty, as, as and, and I think that's important because um, the way I've always approached this, and, and sometimes it's easier, I find that institutions tend to focus in on how to educate themselves more. So to create mechanisms in place to raise awareness of Indigenous cultures, the communities, the knowledge, the histories. The more difficult part is how to get more Indigenous people to be part of those communities. My experience has been a lot of the work to engage and try to bring Indigenous peoples in most cases, have been through the work of Indigenous people. First Nations House, we had our own Indigenous uh, recruitment officer uh, who are very specifically focused. But how do you now think that through differently uh, to us to get more Indigenous students to be part of this? And if so, what is the program that we're offering for them that might meet their needs, which is very different than some of the needs of other students? So those are some of the, I think, to me, some of the change when it comes to kind of the academic side and, and the teaching of courses. One of the things, though, and I think that I, we've been able to do, for example, is the creation of an Indigenous advisory circle or the university, which is something that I've, we've, I've done over at U of T with the Council of Aboriginal Initiatives and the Elder Circle. We need something specifically for our community. And it wasn't to be exclusive, but really to help focus in on what we needed to do. So that was one of the great things that we were able to establish there. Um, I've been able to introduce brand new courses as well. Uh, and the courses that I did kind of move into that were existing, I've been able to increase the Indigenous content. And so I'm able to, to bring in these aspects of education, a different way of approaching different voices, different people. So I, I think to me, that was something, you know, that I've been able to really to help grow on. And so I continually do a lot of work on residential schools to teaching that relationships uh, between Indigenous people and the difference between Christianity and the church as a body, as a, as a structural body versus a faith, and, and talk about those, those aspects. But also, I am really interested in ways of how Indigenous people engage with the faith and it's not all done through one particular denomination. It's done through multiple ways. And from my own experience, I've been able to draw on that. I actually was raised Catholic. 
I got married in a Baptist church. I went to a United Church theological school. I was at for a long time at United Church. I am now elsewhere. Um, and so my journey has changed in the sense, but from an Indigenous standpoint or, or what I've seen, uh, Indigenous peoples of those who are engaged with Christianity are engaged in so many different ways as well. And it's not just in one denomination. You know, that's the other part is how do we help cultivate that within our communities? How do we help build leadership in our own communities as well? But also on the flip side is how do we get people who are thinking about ministry work, service, how we get them to understand when they're engaging with Indigenous peoples, the complexities in terms of bringing in traditional ways and, and, and Christian ways and, and some of the tensions that exist there. So I'm always interested in the narrative. And, and so one of the areas I'm looking at is the voices of our alumni of the Toronto School of Theology and how did the education impact them? What did it do for them personally, professionally, and challenges that arose for them to kind of get a bit of a timeline of how things have changed within the schools, but also to identify what hasn't changed and what are some of the barriers that existed back then that exist now? Because it's, you know, our, our numbers aren't high within the theological side. So again, there's, there's a lot of thought and <laughs> how we're going to deal with this and, and think about it. The conversations we're having with scholars and educators in this series have been focusing on the task of political thinking, um, especially in terms of the increased awareness surrounding structural racism. And I'm wondering how, how you've seen things change in the past year. For example, you know, ha has the increased awareness of anti-Black racism helped increase awareness and accountability concerning things like the TRC calls to action or awareness of the history of residential schools in Canada? Uh, definitely awareness. In, in the last year, right, we, we've seen largely how events impact all of us. When I look at things like the TRC, it brings to light issues that exist that people weren't aware of or never thought about or took for granted. In 1996, the Royal Commission of Aboriginal Peoples Inquiry came out with a report that didn't catch people's attention whatsoever. So I think the one thing is that, number one, people have been more aware because there's been some impact towards them. The, the RCAP, as we call it, in back days, it didn't impact people outside the communities or those who were aware. It became another report. But when you look at the TRC, I think it hit a chord. It hit something that helped people to be aware because suddenly we we're talking about something historical that you can't just say, oh, it didn't happen, or it's not this abstract idea, right, that people really couldn't latch on to. There were these stories that came out about people who were taken from their families and, and sent away somewhere. And there was the abuse, and there were the deaths, and there was the trauma. And I think that hit a chord largely with people. Number one is because of the ages of who were taken. And that was something I think for many start to resonate to say, wait a second. When they start thinking about their own experiences, if they had children of their own or themselves, or it's very different when you start saying this happened. In terms of engagement with Indigenous histories, it, it did change the narrative. Now we look at the last year, and, and I think too, what's so different is also our focus and the availability of people able to be engaged. 
back in 1996, there was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was like these mechanisms to get the word out weren't there. So I think part of it is, you know, when we look at kind of people's engagement and and in in large part in our experiences, particularly, uh, I would say those in Canada right now and and those in, in different provinces, more people are home, more people are staring at a screen, more people have access to, to reports of what's going on and the video footage and the coverage. And, and I think that's really not just raised the awareness, but people are now feeling like, how do, how do, like, how do I get more involved with this? And, and for some, I feel they've been really reflecting upon just thinking about what structures are in place that allow these things to happen. Because I think to me, when people start learning about like even the TRC, the first question is, how could that happen? That's not acceptable. How could that happen? And, and so it's the same thing now. People were so engaged with the recent trial, right? So again, this is in a place, in, in our perspective, is in a different country. But we were all wrapped up into that because we knew the story, we knew what happened and people were so engaged with what was going on. And I think people are starting to think about how these structures in place have allowed these things to happen in the past and, and, and what needs to be done, what kind of work needs to be done so that way we, it doesn't continue. There's other issues that continue as well. And, and unfortunately, not all of them get the same weight in terms of being in the spotlight. They still come and go but they're still happening. Despite the fact that we've had a lot of focus on indigenous awareness, we still see racism in health settings towards indigenous peoples in certain locations. You start seeing all this still dismissive uh, behavior, not seeing indigenous people as, as, as people still, and, and that's still in place, the attitudes that are there. Unfortunately, they don't all get the same amount of outrage as other things. And so we, we can't keep, we can't forget that either. We can't forget that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done continually and a lot of reflection and engagement and, and questioning. The one thing we do see is people, communities are working and supporting each other. So again, it's not just thinking that's their issue. I got my own issues. There is still support that's happening among communities. To understand, you know, and, and I think one thing that I never want to do is, is ever compare whose experiences are traumas or worse than others. That also happens a lot. And, and what we need to think through is, no, communities experience trauma and it's their trauma, but it's not to be compared to other groups' trauma because they have a different set of experiences and a different set of perspectives. And, and we need to understand that. We need to respect that. So there should never be a measuring stick of whose is worse. The situations are different. And so we, if we need to understand that, but we still, it's still, there's still a lot to be done. There's still a lot to be done. So in this context, and as you think about what justice might look like in the, in the context of the relationship between Indigenous communities and, and Canada, I'm wondering if there are any particular ideas or concepts or, or habits of thinking that need to be reconsidered in, in your estimation. When we think about justice, I, I think what has to happen is that there still needs to be more understanding of history. 
understanding of how indigenous communities worked, but how they governed themselves, how they did their own things. And, and what happens is that's going to be brought forward again the way communities need to address their issues need to be brought forward. It's, it's kind of hard to have concepts of justice in Canada when we still have legislation that legally refers to me as an Indian. And it is a body of legislation that dictates, according to the government, of who is Indigenous, who is not, what can be done on reserves, how communities are to elect their leadership. We still have those in place. How do we see justice when in education, First Nations communities that are under federal jurisdiction are still underfunded, where their provincial counterparts are are, are receiving more? Why is there a health problem uh, to access to health for particularly Northern communities? Why Why do some communities, although... I understand there's uh, some attention to it, but why does it take over 25 to 30 years to clean up someone's water? Why did it have to wait that long? Why is the suicide rate still high? Why is the substance abuse still high? Incarceration rates. So it, it's hard to say kind of what needs to change. It's, it's, it's continually going to be a process. It's going to be a journey. And I'm not meaning to sound pessimistic, But a lot of this work is going to continue well after I'm done because there is so much to unravel. There's a lot to unravel. We have to really kind of really, really need to think through is when it comes to Indigenous identities and place within our context is to recognize the contributions, to recognize what Indigenous people have been able to do. It's trying to find those stories in that way for people to understand that Indigenous people have always been engaged. But the barriers that they had to to overcome in order to be engaging still exist. And so I think it's really hard when when you try to collectively deal with the Indigenous community still as one body and to think that one solution is going to, to solve it all for all peoples. And it's not. What people need to understand is the time and effort that needs to be put into this to address it. And to understand too, and I think this is, you know, when it comes to this whole idea about what is reconciliation, the one thing people really try to focus in on is how to help solve the issue. And and the way I have always approached it, and and this is what makes it difficult. Sometimes at the table, you know, where Indigenous voices weren't there, people have tried to really hard to make the space so they can come in, right? So let's try to fit another chair in here, which is great. But sometimes though, you have to give up the chair in order for Indigenous people to come in. And that's harder to do. That's harder to give up that chair, that you're not part of the process anymore, that Indigenous people need to be the ones leading in there. We're not just talking about incorporating more Indigenous aspects into our current structures. It's about what changes need to be done to the structures to reflect Indigenous ways of thinking and Indigenous ways of, of, of reflection. And that's harder to do because that pushes against the status quo. It's easier to, to, to make space to try to include than it is to transform. And so when it comes to this idea about justice, that's where I think we, we, that's the thinking that needs to be done. And then again, that's not going to be easy because even those who are for it, when, when there's this realization that there might be some sacrifice 
then it becomes less appealing, you know, but we have to find ways of making it work together. Again, it, it needs to work together. One idea in particular that, that comes to mind for me in, in connection with, with conversations like this that I've been thinking about is the idea of multiculturalism, which I think is an idea that is very close to Canada's self-image. And it's, it's interesting to me because the idea of multiculturalism seems to speak both to the idea of, you know, working together and dealing and, and addressing our differences together, but it also sometimes seems to veer towards inclusion in the sense of just bringing another chair to the table, as you say, and doesn't always go to the depths of the issue of maybe having to give up one's chair. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering in particular what you think about that idea, the idea of multiculturalism, like given that it's, it's such a, it seems to be such a go-to term for, for Canada's self-identity, do you feel like it still offers a, a helpful way forward or, or should it be rethought? It could be seen as two ways. And, and I think one way, as you said, it's, it's kind of like, Let's include this as well. So in addition to all these languages, we'll add another language in. And, and, and that's one aspect of it. But I think what it is also meaning when it comes to multiculturalism is how are specific perspectives and voices not just contributing, but helping to transform. The one thing to think about a little differently when it comes to Indigenous peoples is that there's a different connection when it comes to this whole relationship with this country. And to understand that the relationship between the people and the land predate the country itself. And so, again, there are going to be some differences in the sense of, of the way Indigenous people engage with the land and the, and, and the territory and with each other. Because the, the peoples were here prior to establishment of any country and any settlement. And so I, I think one thing that always has to be understood that, of the differences there is going there's, that difference is always going to be there. You know, there's always this, the founding nations of Canada, and it's always referring to the English and the French. The Indigenous voices are always silenced. And so I think what, which makes this really an interesting way of how to approach it is to still understand that there's still a distinctness with Indigenous peoples, um, with this territory and, and, and how they think of themselves, but also too, how does the country think of them? So again, it can't be just a blending in of we'll incorporate the indigenous people as well. And there has to be that understanding of the histories and, and, and also some of the ways that exist today are because of indigenous peoples, whether it's names that exist today of what was used. Um, so there has to be an acknowledgement and more than an acknowledgement, it has to be brought up. And, and so it's always interesting when we have these kind of discussions of looking in history and, and looking at those who are who are raised up as, as those who help form this place. A lot of the times, Indigenous people are not in that discussion. And it doesn't mean because they weren't there. It's just they've been omitted. I think what multiculturalism allows us to do better, though, is to learn from each other. People are able to maintain identities and their uniqueness of their identities as well. But to me, it should be also about a sharing and being able to bridge and understand better. And, and to me, that's what I think when we talk about multiculturalism, that's, that, that's an opportunity as well. It's not to say you, you need to hide who you are. You need to put it aside. And we, and we operate on this one level of, of a country, of a citizenship called Canada. It is about this opportunity to, we're, we're sharing land with each other. We're on the same territory, 
but it's better to understand who we are, who our neighbors are, who people go to school with or other communities and to learn from those communities and to be part of those communities in some way. So I think that to me, that's kind of a core of multinationalism is more around understanding each other, our commonalities, our differences. It's interesting that you mentioned just now multinationalism. And now I'm wondering whether that's a more productive idea because insofar as multiculturalism seems to be how Canada thinks of itself, like what, what, you're, what you've been saying really helps me think through is how helpful will that idea be in turning our attention to what precedes Canada if it's like a matter of Canadian self-identity. So maybe we should talk about not about multiculturalism, but about multiple nations. And that's what we are dealing with, yeah. right? So, and I don't want to say I'm interchanging the two words because they're very different from each other. But the one thing that I've always grown up understanding, right? So yeah, I'm part of what's known as an Indigenous culture, a Mohawk culture. But I'm also, and, it, and, and from my growing up, is that I'm part of a nation. I'm part of the Mohawk nation. And there's many other nations within this, what we, we consider to be indigenous peoples, and indigenous cultures. So in a sense, I, I don't think we should be now ignoring it in, in, in the cultural component, but in terms of understanding also the nationalism component as well. And, and to also say, right, we do have people who are saying you may come from a different part of the world, but to understand there's also nations within those, those other cultures and, and how do they relate to each other? So we can't just assume that someone coming from one country is going to be the same as some, someone else coming from the same country. And so we have to think about how they view themselves as well. They may view it as a cultural difference. And, and also, too, I do recognize cultural differences among Indigenous peoples. But I also understand that we also see it, I also see it as a nationhood. And, and so, again, we are now dealing with it in a whole different aspect because when we talk about identities, Right. We talk about also other people, indigenous people who have different cultures and, and, and or, or their families come from different nations as well. And, and so, we, again, we're trying to contend with all this of what it means to be indigenous. I think when we talk about nationalism in, in that way or multinationalism, I think it also broadens that ability to be able to think of ways of how we celebrate it. I'm wondering whether you, you can direct our attention to any concrete resources or strategies, and in particular, in connection with the question of how faith communities should think about their role and responsibilities in pursuing justice for, for Indigenous peoples. And in particular, I'm wondering about institutions of Christian higher learning, such as the Institute for Christian Studies or Emmanuel College. How can, how can institutions such as those think about their role and responsibility here in, in concrete ways? When we're talking about faith communities per se, I think what they need to understand is their own relationships with Indigenous peoples largely. To be honest about the history, whether it's good or bad, you have to understand that there's been interactions and how have those interactions had positive and also negative impacts and not to shy away from it. I think it becomes really sometimes difficult for certain communities to, to face that because they feel like, oh, no, we, you know, that's not our belief system. But it's that way of how the people interpreted that did have impacts on, on Indigenous communities. So I think understanding is there. It's understanding, too, who is part of their community as well. Certain traditions have more engagement than others. And, and I think the, the, what's really important is, is the constant starting the dialogue. Communities, uh, faith communities need to listen first. They need to listen to what Indigenous peoples largely want. 
whether it's it's indigenous Christians, people within their own congregations, or if it's people within who are part of faith community, they need to listen first. Can't just assume that they they know what's the best way. Sometimes what happens is people start off with, to me, what are the easy things, right? We'll establish a land acknowledgement, which is there's nothing wrong with it, but that shouldn't be your kind of only point of contact. And, and I think in terms of responsibility, I think there's a responsibility to listen, the responsibility to have dialogue, and a responsibility to work with Indigenous communities and give the space that's needed so that way these perspectives can be brought in. Sometimes the perspectives and the ways that certain indigenous nations and communities want to do things are so different than what people within the churches, what they're used to. And so sometimes the way an indigenous group may decide, this is how we want to conduct ourselves within the faith. This is how we interpret it. This is how we want to roll it. Sometimes it looks so different than what people are prepared to (laughs) undertake And so it's easy to say, we'll get the space and you can be part of it. But when you start to propose changes that impact people, it makes people very uncomfortable. And and so people have to be prepared to be uncomfortable. To me, it's to understand that reconciliation is not a feel-good project. It's not about people making themselves feel better to try to rectify the past. It's actually about addressing what the needs are for the Indigenous community. And honestly, in many ways, some of the Indigenous community members will do their own things with or without the support of the larger faith tradition, the communities. But it would be better if we actually find ways of working with each other to make that work. If the space and and, and the support is not given, there will be a way how it's done, but it may be end up being separate. And it's the same with, to me, in the sense of education as well. And it's not always going to be easy. The challenges are, number one, there has to be a building of trust in between communities. And it's not always there. Number two, the number of Indigenous people engaged are quite small sometimes. And so the same people get drawn in all the time or rely heavily only on the Indigenous people to say, how do we reconcile? In many ways to say it's actually not our responsibility. We're happy to be part of the process, but we're not here to lead it in that way, in terms of the conciliation process. What Indigenous peoples want to lead are how they're going to engage with these entities, whether it's, it's, it's an institute, whether it's an organization, whether it's a church. They want to lead that piece. But in terms of the, you know who's responsible for repairing the relationship, that should, own, should not be on the Indigenous people and how to do that. Well, thanks very much for joining us uh, for this conversation, Jonathan. It's been really, really enlightening. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Andrew, what's your pleasure? Well, my pleasure this time is the album by Rage Against the Machine called Evil Empire, Mm. which came out in 1996. And I don't know whether, I think it's probably a combination of 
like increased conversations such as the one we're having on this podcast about about politics in in the US and Canada and the whatever algorithm is deciding what I get sent on Facebook but uh, content about Rage Against the Machine the band has been been sent to me more <laughs> often than it ever has been before so it sort of led me to to um going down all that album on iTunes I haven't listened to it in 10 years but it was my like favorite 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 album mm. when I was when I was a kid um I remember when it came out and I, I remember just being blown away by this this super cool band that was doing um, rap rock kind of thing. We used to call it that. And I didn't I didn't really have much of an awareness of of the the political issues that Regis the Machine was protesting against or singing about. But I have to like any any political consciousness that I have now, I think is in some way in part to listening to that album and, and sort of getting a sense that music or some music um, and much music is about political protest and. Yeah, I just have been very much enjoyed going back to that album and listening to it and turning it up super loud and seeing how much of the lyrics of from from the frontman, I guess, Zach DeLaRocca, how much of his lyrics I can actually remember, which is about 40%, I think. I, I, I do have a love for Rage Against the Machine, though I'm really, I, I'm into uh, Battle of Los Angeles. Oh, that's, yeah. my, that's my album. That's the classic. But we're recording this on April 28th. Mm-hmm. And... So there's only really one pleasure that I could think of that overwhelms me, which is obviously the Blue Jays, because mm. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. last night hit three home runs, and one of those was the Grand Slam. So it was quite the evening. And then today, George Springer makes his debut. So I was going to ask. Um, it's a pretty fun time. All right, so they're going to tune in tonight. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been confirmed. It was supposed to happen yesterday, and then like last second, they're like, no, his quad's not 100%. And then it's been confirmed that tonight is the night. So yeah. sorry for those that aren't listening to this live, which is all of you. Um, you won't be able to watch his debut. <laughs> or maybe you did. and you <laughs> Live, anyways. Yeah. Maybe you did. Yeah, I... Uh, yeah, I... I turned it on because usually usually the games that start at seven um, coincide with having dinner over here. Um, but I turned mm. it on at the beginning because I wanted to see if he was in the lineup. Um, and when he, and when he wasn't, I I felt less bad about not watching most of the game. But I did I did tune in just to see Vladdy's third home run, um, which was pretty oh, exciting. Nice. But now that, now that you've let me know that that George Springer is in fact starting tonight, I gotta watch. I gotta watch it. Gotta watch the whole thing. That's it for our show this week. Stay with us in the weeks to come as we continue to ask our friends and colleagues to reflect on political life after 2020 in this series. If you're interested in learning more about one of the remote courses ICS is offering this summer, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu to register or with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Mark Standish, and you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. If you're interested in Jonathan's teaching at Emmanuel College, you can find more information on the Emanuel College website at www.emanuel.utoronto.ca. In the coming academic year, Jonathan will be teaching residential schools, 
enactment responses and calls to action in the fall 2021 session and he'll be teaching engaging the spirit indigenous theological worldviews in winter of 2022 and from the heart of ics thank you all for listening this has been critical faith if you like what you heard you can subscribe to us on itunes follow along with us on spotify or find us on your podcast app of choice remember following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar most importantly Go tell your friends.